Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. It's that time again, keeping score. We talk about the big issues of the week. We're going to fast forward ahead to 2020 in a minute, but we'd like to introduce the digital editor for Reuters.com, Amy Tenery. Amy, how are you? Hey, Rick. I'm great. How are you? Good. We're plugging it up top, at Amy Tenery, Twitter handle. She's the best, and she'll demonstrate her sports knowledge and her curmudgeon-like behavior in just a minute. (laughs) All right. Yeah, really. So first of all, congratulations to your Pats in the Super Bowl. We'll get to that in a minute. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Other people can, which is why we're not starting with it. 2020 Olympics, weirdly unique feature, the medals they give out, awarded to athletes made by, through, with recycled materials. The committee hopes to gather as much as eight tons of metal, 40 kilos of gold, 2,900 kilos of silver, etc., to meet the required amount. Not the biggest issue in the world, but it is one of those things where legacy for Olympics is important, and especially if you're going to be known as the recyclable Olympics. What do you think? You know, it might be my icy, cynical, uh, I think you said curmudgeonly heart, but I'm a a little skeptical here. I got to say, you know, this comes up every Olympics. They build these stadiums. There's all the fanfare. There's all of the, the great athletic feats. And then they sit empty and they rack up fees. And, you know, I'm looking at these medals and that's great, but it seems like it's more of a symbolic gesture than a, a more tangible impact. Um, you know, they're going to melt down a bunch of Nokia phones or something. I don't know. And then hand out their trash medals. On a scheme of things, the melting down of recyclable stuff and giving them medals is about a one the developing legacy for the Olympics and building facilities that have multiple uses and satisfying goals about meeting transportation imperatives and infrastructure and all, I suspect is probably more important, don't you think? Oh, you're absolutely right. If they can come up with new and creative ways to say it's important that we don't just trash these cities that host the Olympics, I'm all for it. I think that's Excellent. And and you're right. You know what? This is a unique development. What I'm saying is I want to see them go a little bit farther. I don't want to see them just say, hey, we got these recycled metals. Where's our pat on the back? Let's move up to North America and get a little colder. Pittsburgh Penguins center Sidney Crosby finished atop the list of best-selling NHL jerseys during the first half of this season through 2016. Understandable because he's a big icon in Pittsburgh. They won the Stanley Cup, third in total points. But Austin Matthews as a Maple Leaf, and then Patrick Kane and and Jonathan Taves and Edmonton center Connor, Connor McDavid were number two through five. How do you sum all of that up? I mean, look, with Sidney Crosby, you can't overstate the fact that he's about to be Mr. 1000 and one of fewer than 100 players who can actually claim that. He's about to hit or one would assume he's about to hit 1,000 career points. He's at something like, I think it's like 998. So he's been enjoying a lot of the momentum simply from the the excitement building up around that number. You know, I think that Kane, obviously, he's a perennial favorite. He's beloved in his hometown of Buffalo. He's beloved in Chicago. 
He's got uh, you know, cross-geographic appeal. You know, I think right now the NHL is uh, long from the days of Gretzky. They're still kind of struggling to make some inroads and gain the kind of popularity that sports like basketball, baseball, football have in North America. But, um, you know, I certainly think this, this could bode well for their future. I don't know. What, what's your feeling? Well, my feeling is after listening to Gary Bettman, you know, we did him a uh, we did a Facebook last week uh, from the front of Staples Center with him. And he said, you know, we got to mix it up. Canada, young, old diversity and all. And look, this is right. There were not any Canadian playoff teams last year of all seven. Not good for him. He's an American and people saw that. But yet two of the top five jersey sales are young Canadian soon-to-be superstars, Austin Matthews, by the way, who was born in Texas, but don't tell that to people in Toronto, <laughs> and, and Connor McDavid, you know, who's at Edmonton Oilers Center. So I think it's really good for the league, not only the American-Canadian mixture, but the young and old, Crosby, Kane, Taves on the one side, and Matthews and McDavid on the other. So leagues survive because they keep themselves relevant, and as a hockey fan, I assume you kind of yearn for the superstars, right? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? And it's, you know, it's especially difficult, I think, for that league because they're already in such an oversaturated time of year. Obviously, we just, you know, wrapped up the NFL, but, you know, there's still a, a lot of great stuff going on with the NBA. We got a lot of superstars there. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that are distracting from it. So, I mean, yeah, I'm a hockey fan. There is nothing better than hockey playoffs. I mean, it, it just doesn't get any better than that. So, you know, I think uh, I think you're right. I think this is good for the league and and. God bless those Canadians who uh, are keeping this league going. You know, there is something better than the playoffs. That's your your darn team winning the Super Bowl. But we have one issue before we get to that, okay, which is college athletics. $6,000 check on the way to kids thanks to a class action settlement end of last week. The 11 D1 conferences decide to allocate about $209 million for the benefit of former basketball players and others. And the NCAA says they're not going to tax anybody or use any other additional revenues. They pull it out of reserves. But the remainder of the class action that is still unresolved includes an effort to eliminate all restrictions on compensation for student-athletes and the whole pay-per-play issue. Uh, Not as a lawyer, because we don't want to get into Legalese 101. What's your take on all of this? So on the one hand, this is a small group of students who are being compensated kind of retroactively in some cases. And, um, you know, for the NCAA, six grand per per case, it's a drop in the bucket. That said... Um, you know, this is a small step, yes, but, you know, the more rulings that we see coming in favor of students, the more of a framework we could potentially see toward this kind of pay-for-play model. Now, this is something, obviously, the NCAA is going to fight tooth and nail. They have before, but a lot of public support, I think, is swinging toward the students. I think you see it on social media. I, I think you see it in isolated cases of, of, of students speaking out. What's your take? Do you think this is a pipe dream for the student-athletes? No, but here's the biggest issue to me. Uh, and Northwestern, of course, there were a bunch of guys who wanted to form a labor union, and the judge basically allowed it, and now we don't hear anything about that. And the reason is just like why Ed O'Bannon, who was one of the patriots and heroes of this whole 
world is successful because most of the guys who were good enough to have a standing, men's and women, to be part of a plaintiff's case are out of school by the time it hits the courts. And then the people who don't have pro careers, it's not as important to them because their name isn't as valuable. So it's probably one of those issues that has a legal right, but as a practical matter, is very tough to deal with because, especially with one and done in basketball and, you know, two and done in football, you're up and out before you have a chance to make a difference. Well, sure, but if you are one of those athletes who isn't, who didn't get a pro career out of their uh, student career, gosh, that $6,000 might come in handy. Clearly 6000 important to any college student anywhere, and it's not just the money, it's the philosophy and it's the intensity. Yeah, all right, intensity is the way we segue into this, and I understand, Amy, that there was a little bit of a football game that was played on Sunday that 111 million people were watching in addition. Yeah, 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 in addition, everybody else was watching on mobile. Uh, (laughs) All right, so you're, you're a Patriots fan, so let's get it out of the way. How do you feel about it? I, I how do I feel about it? I, I feel pretty great. Um, you know, it, it, this is a significant game. Obviously, it's a significant game every year. But when you're talking about a league that's come off a year of declining ratings, uh, they needed a very exciting Super Bowl now more than ever, and they got it. Biggest comeback in Super Bowl history. Uh, Patriots were down by 25 points, I believe. So this was this was huge for the league. They got the game that everybody's going to be talking about, not just for a week, but for potentially years to come. This was huge. Uh, And it's also, I think, a big deal for Patriots fans who are still licking their wounds from the deflate gates uh, suspension. They felt a little bit of schadenfreude, I would imagine. I don't know. Other people might have felt that way. I certainly I certainly wasn't, uh, but they might have been feeling a little schadenfreude watching, uh, you know, Goodell hand over the Lombardi trophy. Um, but look, it was a it was a blockbuster game, a great halftime show. If you're anybody outside of the you know greater New England area, you're probably not too thrilled about it. But um, I think any objective observer of the league could say this was just a, a terrific matchup. I will give you my perspective as a 40-year, 50-year, don't date myself, Dolphin fan uh, who gets the snot beat out of it by the Patriots every year. It is a great dynasty. Seven of them, five wins, five by Brady, greatest of all time, Kraft ownership group, compelling Patriot place, Gillette Stadium, $4 billion net worth, great for the community, great for the NFL. And now I guess we get into the reopening of the collective bargaining agreement, potentially halfway into its 10-year term. We get into relocating the Raiders or keeping them there. We get into concussion protocol. I guess the bottom line is Deflategate's squarely over, and now the NFL has a chance to focus on other issues, right? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, there's there's so much to focus on right now. It, you've got this kind of limbo situation going on with the Raiders. You've got all of San Diego up in a lather. Frankly, I think a lot of fans, uh, a lot of lifelong fans who have some you know pretty legitimate concerns about player safety, But, you know, if I'm Roger Goodell and I'm looking out for number one, my biggest concern is keeping the owners happy. And that is what has kept him in his job this whole time. He has made the owners a tremendous amount of money. He has made the NFL more popular than anyone's wildest imaginations. And that's, you know, I think in in some people's estimations, part of what has kept him in his job through some pretty ugly bumps in the road. The issue now is if I'm a if I'm a teen owner, I'm saying, what have you done for me lately? Because I'm looking at declining ratings and I'm saying, 
you know, what gives? And I think it goes back to what we were talking about with the National Hockey League. There is such a saturation and you are really clawing for every little bit of, of the market share when it comes to eyeballs, sports fans. Now you could brush this off as hey, there was also an election this year, and that was pretty crazy, and maybe that might have distracted a few people. But I think if you're a team owner, you want a better explanation than that. And I don't know. I don't I don't know what he needs to do right now. Maybe it's rethink some of Thursday night football. I don't know if it's rethink, you know, the London games. Well, I think he has a lot of focus to do, including take stock in what he has. I and mean, one of the issues that, that Dan Calarusa and we have talked about all the time, and we've gotten people on here, Ross Greenberg and otherwise, about what is the measurement? appropriately? Is it the televisions? Is it the mobile devices? I've got family who's never owned a television as they got out, and they're still doing quite fine with streaming. And so eyeball check. More people are excited. We're even talking about declaring a holiday on Super Bowl Mondays for the people that either call in sick or pretended (laughs) so. So I'm not worried. You know, my boss said that I didn't have to come into work on Monday after the Super Bowl. I heard it on his podcast. (laughs) boss if you're listening and you will because this is archived your people were way above and beyond because if they did come in they certainly were focused on talking super bowl for 90 percent of the time so very inappropriate for anybody in america to work on super bowl monday but that's another issue for another day amy you are fantastic that was wonderful we'll have you on again and it was super segue into peter o'reilly the senior vice president of events. He's 42 years old, but he runs all of the NFL's properties. And we talked about all issues, risk, mega events, ticket prices, security, TV show. And it's not just Super Bowl, but every mega event that makes the NFL special. It's timeless. And that's why you're going to hear from, and I think appreciate, Peter O'Reilly. This is more of a general how to put on mega events by the league that is known as the special event and economic juggernaut. And the guy that's been running it is a veteran of the sports industry for 20 years. He joined the NFL in 2005. He played a senior role in New York City 2012. The Olympic bid, NBA production marketing department's career at ABC Sports. He got an MBA at the wrong side of the river, the Harvard Business School. We won't hold it against him. Peter O'Reilly, how's that for an intro? Oh, wow, I'll take it, Rick. Peter O'Reilly's uh, job basically running all things special events. And tell me broadly, special events meaning draft, Pro Bowl, etc., and Super Bowl, what else is in your portfolio? Yeah, draft, Pro Bowl, combine, kickoff, working very closely on the international game, especially as we went to Mexico this year, and then uh, all, of our, uh, all of our big owners' meetings. But really, Super Bowl, draft, combine kickoff uh, Pro Bowl. So a good a good run of uh, big moments throughout the year. Your business is all about realistically delivering on expectations and appropriately managing all risks. That's overly simplifying. But but comment on on the kind of assessment of pulling off one of the biggest events in the planet. Sure. For a Super Bowl like this one where it's really a three-year planning cycle where you you lay the foundation early. You really get the, the core elements. Where's the center of gravity? You know what you have in a stadium. You really get those elements set. And then as you come into that last year and those last six months, you really try to determine how do you each year try to take it to a next level. And that for us is certainly the game is huge. And that's, you know, major focus, major focus, both from a security standpoint, a you know, significant driver on the, on the revenue side. And that's the showcase. But it's really about the week-long experience. How do you create 
access for that fan who may not have a chance to be in the stadium? How do you bring that together? How do you create a hub of activity that really creates a real soul around the Super Bowl? So all of those things come into it. And to your point, Rick, it's about managing the risk, making sure we're being smart operationally, not taking on too much risk, but also each year pushing the envelope and making sure we're doing things that are worthy of the Super Bowl stage and and make people say, wow. I'm not an apologist for Peter O'Reilly or the NFL or its position, but I've had the honor uh, of seeing the event handbook and how big it is and how many contingency plans are in there. This is certainly not like going to a neighborhood 7-Eleven and buying a a six-pack of beer for your buddies. The planning of this is stupendous. Can you give us, anecdotally maybe, but give the international viewers and listeners some idea of the scope? Yeah, when you you think about... 20,000 plus accredited people. That's what the the staff really balloons to who are playing a role, you know, large or small in the Super Bowl. You've got, from a security perspective, you're dealing with uh, certainly everyone at the federal level from Homeland Security and FBI all the way down to HPD and the local authorities. So those efforts and those contingencies and those exercises where you sit around the table with every local, state, national, you know, federal figure, um, as well as our all the operational people and go through those plans is, uh, you know, it's significant. And the great part is we've got an incredible core team who has many Super Bowls under their belt and have seen a lot of different things and worked a lot of events around the world, but it's a unique one. You know, many of many other events are, you know, multi-day, multi-week events. This is, you know, all leads to, to one day, one big moment that, is about the game on the field and the two best teams, but obviously there's a lot else that surrounds it. There's uh, one of the biggest concerts of the year jammed into 13 minutes between the two halves that uh, has a lot of complexity to it and, uh, and a lot of fun to it. That's where I am right now at the, at the stadium with rehearsals for Lady Gaga. Are you singing or is she? <laughs> I'm going to leave that to her, Rick. That's good. Well, we got Jamie Roots in a prior interview to actually do some singing for us as well. Jamie's and Rick Campo are interesting, good examples of the public-private business partnership it takes to put it on. Without being a little Pollyannish, you wouldn't have anything near the event you have without the host committee, Greater Houston Partnership, Texans, correct? Absolutely. There is That is the core of the Super Bowl. They, they're the the folks who bid on this game had the vision for bringing the Super Bowl back to Houston, building on 2004 when this city was in a very different place. There's been incredible development, as you know, in Houston since 2004. The downtown is in a very different place, and that's thanks to people like Rick and Jamie and others who said, we're going we're gonna to take this on, we're going to rally the community, and that's in so many different ways that that comes to life. So that, that's so core. And leaders like Mayor Sylvester Turner, who is an, you know, a great leader and inspirational and, and is part of it. So we uh, at the NFL are incredibly grateful for those partners on the ground because the Super Bowl is about locking arms with those people, coming up with a vision, and then uh, seeing it through till uh, this weekend. How difficult is it to keep an ongoing interest on the projects that are started and committed by the host committee slash NFL partnership? after the game is gone. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a huge part of what we, what we do. And we having that legacy component and, and not just here's the NFL's efforts over here and here's the host committee's efforts over here. When it works well, we've got a shared vision. We've got 
pooling our um, charitable commitments and our foundation dollars to make sure that the fields that we build, the spaces that we create, the opportunities that we create um, live on and have legs and are connected into the community, that the Texans are connected into those things. So that's, that's a huge part of it. And it's, you know, there is, a, you know, a lot of major events have this, but Super Bowl certainly have it, has it. It's a date certain. And if you look at downtown Houston, that Marriott Marquis, our headquarters hotel, is finished three, four weeks before uh, everyone moved in. But that was, we're going to get it done, restaurants downtown, other spaces. That was a date certain to make sure that uh, things were ready to go. And there'll be a legacy of other events seeing that, seeing the heartbeat of the city that now exists in downtown Houston. Um, and it'll attract other business and other big events, which they're excited about. And Peter O'Reilly, you don't have the issue that Olympic chairmen of local committees have in terms of guaranteeing that the facilities are used because they're the host facilities of the NFL team that applies, but the infrastructure commitments, the transportation commitments that some Olympics work well with and some do not are issues that are particularly important to you too, I would guess. They are. They are. Certainly there's, you know, from a stadium perspective, often we're improving with the, the owner of the stadium or the owner of the team to make sure we take it to its, its zenith on Super Bowl Sunday. But those other elements and making sure that the transportation infrastructure is there, that the elements that we need for all of the fan events, that a convention center, which often plays a significant role in the Super Bowl fan experience, is at its best during that Super Bowl. And then that, that remains beyond. And one of the things we often hear, which is which we love hearing around a Super Bowl, is it it brings so many different pieces, whether that's the public safety community or the business community together, and then that lives on for the next big event or the next component. Or there's there's glue that uh, the white hot spotlight of the Super Bowl brings, um, and it, it it allows it to continue on. And I'm excited to to see that year after year as I go back to these cities where I've had Super Bowls. Well, and also to make the case post and pre. 500 or so million of economic impact is the number that Rick has been using or, or so. But the 3.5 billion media impressions and the awareness and mentions and quality of life and the synergy between people, it's often very hard to quantify but easy to understand, right? It is. It's easy to understand. Certainly that, that direct economic impact is, is there. Um, but it's also about is when we sat down with Houston for the first time, they're, they want to involve the, the, the message and the way people think about Houston, the city of the future. There's so much innovation here. There's so much industry here besides oil and gas and the space industry that is coming through and is on display here as this incredibly diverse city, what, what um, is really described as the most diverse city in the United States and a city that is – thrives on innovation this weekend we're doing a major event at the texas medical center their you know their medical community here is first class and really wanted to shine a spotlight on that and that those eyeballs those impressions those stories um have real value to uh to these communities and that's that's great to be able to provide that platform does the ongoing controversy that happens in any community about uh, sales tax abatement and the fact that this could go to other uh, projects, if the sales tax money uh, was uh, was uh, not forgiven, um, obviously. Well, first of all, answer the argument. Then, second, does it bother you that it keeps popping up city after city? It doesn't bother me. I understand the scrutiny around that. I think we it, it's fairly 
fairly clear the, uh, the you know the positive economic impact that trumps any any sales tax abatement there. And it, from our standpoint, it doesn't bother us at all. We understand the argument. We we can uh, you know we can we can handle working through that. But that is it's clear. And this is a as you know well, Rick. This is a very competitive process with a lot of cities bidding each year. It gets more and more competitive every year. And I think you'll you'll see that continuing. And sitting with Mayor Turner yesterday, he very clearly wants Houston as part of the rotation and the, the list of cities who want to host a Super Bowl. And as we continue to move our events around, the number of cities that want to host an NFL draft, that want to host a Pro Bowl grows every year. So obviously bidders are more aggressive than ever before. They see the benefits with new stadiums and construction renovation. So the list of quote-unquote preferred or, or actual rotation candidates is larger, but also you have the ability to provide Pro Bowl, draft, some other special events that you can rotate around the country as well. Do we have a matrix that talks about what you're going to do over the next 10 years? Is it separate processes? Do you link them together? It's interesting. We have a we have an ownership committee, the the Super Bowl and major events advisory committee that spends a lot of time thinking about that. We have a good run of Super Bowls already awarded, obviously headed to the to Minnesota and the new stadium there in Atlanta following that and the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium down in Atlanta that will open this year. Um, and then to Miami, and a great renovation down there, and then to the new stadium in Inglewood and Los Angeles. So that's the run. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll – go into the spring and, and name the finalists for that next set of Super Bowls. And there's, there's strong interest, both among the traditional set of Super Bowl hosts, and then, as you said, other more non-traditional hosts are, are, are interested as well, whether it's related to new stadiums or not. We, we look at draft as a bit of a separate process. That's still in its early days. The Super Bowl is so um, mature in terms of its bidding process. In moving out of New York after 51 years to Chicago for two years and then to Philadelphia this April, we're still learning, we're still evolving. But I think we and the commissioner see the, the opportunity to get the draft around, which is this right of spring when everyone's got hope. So I think you'll see us looking at moving it around to more cities. You have fewer barriers with the draft because weather is less of an issue, stadium is less of an issue, so there's more opportunity to get it around and reach more fans. Got it. As one last Super Bowl-related question. Is it in your interest long-term to continue to award multiple Super Bowls at a given time to provide some certainty to people over a longer period of time, or is it better to kind of hold off and see how the climate evolves on a regular basis? It's an interesting question. I think there's more benefit to getting further out as Super Bowl gets more complex, as it gets more expensive for for both uh, the NFL and for our host committees who are raising a lot of private dollars to uh, to ensure Super Bowl success. More lead time is helpful, so I think you'll see that. The counter to that is is making sure you have flexibility and you can see out on the horizon whether those are new stadiums coming on or, or other changes. So overall, you'll see us continuing to push further out, but we've got to have an eye towards where are there shifts in the landscape, where might there be uh, new stadium opportunities, which would tie into a Super Bowl game. Final, final, final question. So the Tuesday morning after the Super Bowl, because the Monday you make sure people get out of town right, you shut your phone off and you put it away and you 
decompress for how long before you start working on the draft? Uh, combine first. Come on. Oh yeah, forgot combine. Yeah, you and you forgot the combine too when we mentioned it. I know. Oh, yeah, I did. Forgot. I forgot that one. That one's becoming a bigger fan event this year. We're uh, we're bringing it to the fans. So yeah, we. Uh, I think I had had to, to Indy for some planning meetings and then down to Philadelphia on the on the Monday after. So I think I'm uh, I'm home with the kids for a few days and they. Uh, they just hit the ground here in Houston. They won't see much of me over the next few days, but it's good to have them here. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter O'Reilly, uh, my one bit of advice, turn the damn phone off. Turn it <laughs> off. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Speak with you soon. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.